This is On and Off Your Mat podcast, episode 72, Yoga for Mental Health. We are continuing our mental health team in hopes of supporting you through these challenging times. If you missed our episode on anxiety, that was number 70, and you also got a deep dive and practice along of alternate nostril breathing on the premium membership on Patreon at the beginning of this November. Some of you have reached out to say how much it helped them, so I just want to say thank you if you did. For today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Lauren Tauber. Lauren is a clinical psychologist and yoga teacher with a passion for health, healing, happiness, and awakening. She is the founder of Awake Psychology, an online Australia-wide psychology practice, the Center of Mind-Body Wellness, also in Australia. She teaches mental health-aware yoga trainings worldwide, and she runs several highly acclaimed online courses. Lauren believes that happiness is our true nature and that yoga, gratitude, authenticity, compassion, creativity, and community helps us to cultivate happiness in our lives on an everyday basis. As always here on the podcast, I really appreciate your support. Have you checked our new Instagram page at On and Off Your Mat Podcast already? We are starting all the way back from the beginning, revisiting every single episode. So come by and follow us and you can catch up on all the episodes you've missed and their great content or you can get reminders of your favorite episodes you can also continue to support this show through patreon as i just mentioned before for as low as five dollars a month you get access to more content like the episode on alternate nostril breathing you get tutorials guided meditation much more and we have a second and third tier where you get access to some or all the classes we've been recording on zoom and continue to record during this shelter in place so if you'd like to have access to all of this extra content, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a premium member on the tier of your choice. All right, ready for our episode of today? Let's jump into it with Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for joining me all the way from Australia. Pleasure. Uh, Lauren, for listeners that don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your good journey? Sure. So a little bit about myself. I am a mother of two. That's probably the most important for me. So I'll, I'll start with that. Mm-hmm. I'm also a clinical psychologist and a yoga teacher and I rest meditation teacher. And I'm the founder of Mental Health Aware Yoga. So I train yoga teachers about mental health. Mm-hmm. A little bit about my yoga journey. Um, I started yoga, I don't even know, maybe 20 years ago now. I was a, um, like a, like a, what do you call it, exchange student in Vancouver, uh, studying psychology in Vancouver. And I, I met this guy at the youth hostel I was staying at, and he took me along to a Kundalini yoga class Ooh. in the community, call it like a community center there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, I found it really strange. Everyone was dressed in white. It was dark with like little fairy lights everywhere and they had the turbans and I didn't know what was going on. And I found it like, like I found it really strange, but there's something in it that, that lit me up. And I knew from that first class that, you know, I don't know what's going on here and it all looks a bit weird, but this is something that I want to keep doing. And, you know, I have since then. Amazing. What particularly in your life brought you to focus your work or want to work with mental health and mental illness in particular? Well, you know what? I, I When I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I, and so I went to university and I studied psychology and I studied Indonesian and I studied Asian religion and I studied anatomy and physiology and I did this kind of broad education. And then I kind of narrowed it down over time. I was really interested in psychology. Um, so in the end, I double majored in, in psychology. And I think I've just always been interested in people, people's mm-hmm. stories, what makes them tick, um, people's journeys, how they got to where they're going, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, maybe I'm just curious. And mm-hmm. it's pretty cool that in my job, I get to sit there and listen to people's journeys every day. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice way to see it. So we're all on the same page. Can we start by defining what is mental illness? I feel like it's probably more prevalent than people think, and it's still Mm -hmm. taboo in certain circles or areas of the world. 
So yeah. let's start there. Okay. So depends depends where we're coming from when we define mental mm. illness. If we're looking at it from a, like a Western psychological, psychiatric, medical kind of model, we're talking about, you know, mental illnesses. If you have a, a, a diagnosis of something that's in the DSM-5, which is what psychologists use, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual number 5. <laughs> and so there's all these different diagnostic criteria that you need to meet. Um, so whether that's major depressive disorder or social anxiety or schizophrenia, or, you know, whatever it is there's this like big fat book I often use it to prop my computer up um, of diagnosable mental illnesses so from the western psychology point of view you need to fit into this into this criteria um, not everyone meets criteria for this not everyone agrees with the criteria for this I think it's you know we can talk about mental illness from a western psychological perspective but I think it's also important to talk about mental health challenges and this may or may not meet diagnostic criteria, but it's when, you know, we all go through this and we all struggle when we're having, um, you know, we're having a tough time. It may or may not meet diagnostic criteria, but it's getting in the way of us fully enjoying and appreciating our lives and connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. So does that include like anxiety that it's not, you know, a general disordered anxiety or... Um, mm trauma that is maybe not diagnosed as PTSD but something did happen and you know you're having some Definitely. reactions or okay what about just like really acute stress <laughs> well stress isn't a diagnosable mental illness it doesn't mm -hmm. come in the DSM-5 but it kind of is a precursor or underlies a lot a lot of um what what we would call mental illness and what's in the diagnostic criteria. I don't think anyone gets through life without feeling stress <laughs> and particularly at the moment um, with, with everything that's going on in the world. We're incredibly stressed and anxious all over the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, stress underlies a lot of, you know, physical illness, right? As well as psychological totally. um, stuff that we experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So then thinking about a broader picture of mental illness or mental health mm -hmm. challenges, as yoga yeah. teachers, what do we need to know about mental illness? What are some facts maybe we should be aware of? Is it like, you know, mm -hmm. half of our room might be struggling with some kind of level of mental yeah. health challenges or what, what should we know? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think what you've brought up there is, is something we need to know that mental illness, mental health challenges is incredibly common. Mm -hmm. So statistically, I mean, it varies in different countries, but in, in many Western countries, one in five people report a diagnosable mental illness in the past 12 months. So that's in a 12 month period. Mm -hmm. So you think about your yoga class, whether, you know, we all used to gather in studios. Now it's mostly mm -hmm. online. You know, one in five of your students statistically will meet criteria mm. for a diagnosable mental illness. So that's likely to be a couple of your students statistically. That doesn't incorporate people who are not meeting that diagnostic criteria. So chances are another couple of people in your class are struggling or going through something. So mental illness, mental health challenges are incredibly prevalent. There was some research done in Australia, I think back in 2005, uh, by a guy called Stephen Penman, and he re he interviewed um, over 3,000 yoga teachers and students in Australia and asked them all sorts of questions just to kind of get an idea of the state of the yoga in Australia. And he found that it was over half of the people of yoga students reported starting yoga for mental health reasons. Wow. And more than three quarters of the students reported continuing practicing yoga for mental health reasons. So they started probably for a physical reason and then they saw that it impacted their mental health in a positive way and they decided, well, might as well awesome. continue. <laughs> Yeah, there's something to this. I'm going to keep going. Exactly. And so I think that's really important to know as yoga teachers. One, statistically, mental mental health stuff is really prevalent. Two, people are coming to yoga. Like this is one of the main reasons people come to yoga is for the mental health benefits. I don't think we realize that that clearly. That mm. I think it's there's an assumption that most people come to yoga for the physical part first. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because that that 
was my thought. But having shared these statistics with lots of people, so many people who ask me, you know, in interviews like this, they say, oh yeah, I started yoga because I was anxious or, oh yeah, I started yoga when I was stressed. So when you start this conversation and particularly when I teach um, in groups of people and we start to have these conversations about mental health, people say, oh yeah, this is why I started yoga. And you know, yoga helps me with my anxiety or depression. And when you start to open the conversation about it, People mm-hmm. start, you know, reporting this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fascinating. I think we're often not having these discussions and not having these conversations, and that's why we don't know about it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I'm so glad we're talking about it today. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because for me, I started from what seemed for physical, but my physical desires or issues or things I wanted to to address came from mental <laughs> challenges so like it's mm-hmm. very intertwined as well you know like I, I started yoga to lose weight but it's it was all within an eating disorder situation so it's not just like oh I needed to you know lose 10 pounds and that was it it was much more complicated and layer than that so but mm-hmm. I've never considered that I started yoga for a mental health challenge but I definitely continued for that because I realized I didn't actually really lose the weight, but I realized that I felt much mm-hmm. better really quickly, like oh, just in my wow. body and in myself. What a beautiful myself. distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. how can yoga teachers support their students knowing that there's a handful or more in their class that are coming for mental health reasons mm-hmm. and at the same time really stay in their scope of practice as a yoga teacher? Yeah. Yeah, scope of practice is really important. I love that you bring that up because as as yoga teachers, we are yoga teachers. Like that's our scope of practice. Unless you have qualifications and experience in other areas, mm-hmm. we're showing up as yoga teachers. And sometimes our students tend to see us as their gurus or their therapists or their doctors or their physiotherapists. And they kind of, they kind of put that on us in a way. And if we're not careful, we can take that on. Um, so it is really important that we that we stay inside our scope of practice for the safety of our students. But I also think it's actually just a relief um, that we don't have to know everything. <laughs> it's a relief to stay within our scope of practice totally. and say, oh, you know, um, you know, if someone comes and they let you know that they're feeling depressed, you can say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Um, you know, I know this really great psychologist. I wondered if you'd like me to give you their number. And um, so you can act as a way to support them to access the services that I need. And that is a beautiful, amazing help in itself without having to take it on and saying, you know, tell me more about that and tell me about that time that you wanted to kill yourself. Like that, you know, I say that lightly, but it's it's um, yeah yeah not not uncommon and that that staying within your scope of practice is a real gift to your students and to yourself as well. Okay, so that was that was a little bit of a detour, but in terms of what we can do to support, what we can like actually do to support our students, I think one of the best things we can do is to create a safe container mm. for our classes. So um, yes, we, there's lots of amazing practices for mental health, definitely. I think one of the real gifts we can give our students is to create a space where they can come and feel safe, where they feel seen and heard and, you know, feel like somebody is is present with them um, and to support them to create community, whether it's with us as a teacher, like as a one-on-one with a teacher or with, with the group, holding a space that feels safe is a really powerful thing. And, you know, sometimes if we've been doing yoga for a long time, we can take that for granted. But for many people, they they have never had that in their life or they've only had it in small pockets. And mm-hmm. it can be a really beautiful thing to offer our students. For some listeners, some teachers, that might be really obvious what you're talking about. But for other, it might not quite be as obvious. So what makes a, sa- a, a, um, a container, a class safer than another one? What in the action or in the languaging or in the present, what is it that makes that difference and makes someone feel safe yeah. and nur- nourished and taken care of? Yeah, all of those those things that you mentioned, definitely the presence. And, um, you know, in, in the Mental Health Away Yoga training, we go into a lot of detail around this. Uh, and often it's very practical things like, 
um, you know, being really predictable. So when the student mm. comes, they know where the props are, they know where the bathroom is, um, they know how you start and end the class and, you know, you're going to vary the class up, but basically they know what's going to happen when they come in the class. So um, it can be incredibly, you know, if you're feeling, ang- if you generally feel anxious and you've never been to a yoga class or you've been, you know, just a few times, it can be really, 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 um, challenging to show up to a yoga class for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if the, if the student feels comfortable, like relatively comfortable, comfortable enough to come back again, and each time um, there's a similar thing that happened, they can learn to trust. I know what's going to happen mm-hmm. when I show up mm-hmm. in this space. And then over time, just from having that predictability from the class, the anxiety levels can start to come down and they start to to know what happens and you know maybe you've had that experience yourself the first time you go to a yoga studio or a dance class or you know any anything for the first time you're kind of looking around and wondering what's going on and did I put my mat in the right place and you know all that kind of stuff um and it can be really calming for the nervous system if we know what's going to happen we have that predictability so we can be predictable we don't have to be boring but we can be be predictable for our students um, other ways to create a safe container include things like, um, you know, n- not locking the door. You know, some yoga studios, they, mm. they kind of lock the door or they have a door that's difficult to unlock uh, or students aren't sure if they can leave or not. If someone's, you know, not feeling safe in that space, whether it's through anxiety or perhaps they have a history of trauma, um, they need to know they can leave if 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 they want to. And so um, just knowing you can leave can settle your nervous system enough that you can stay. Mm -hmm. But if you feel like you don't know how to leave if you can't, sorry, you don't know how to leave if you want to, or it's going to be embarrassing if you leave, or, um, you know, you don't know how to unlock the door, then you're disturbing the whole class or yeah. Yeah, that can bring up a lot of anxiety and, you know, it's going to be really hard to be really present uh, in the class if you already have that really high level of anxiety. So, it, I mean, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive. You need to let the students know that they can leave and make it easy for them to leave if they need to so they can stay. But that, that's that been my experience that it really helps students to, for their nervous systems to settle if, mm. if that's the case. Okay, what other things can we do? Um, you know, the language that we use mm-hmm. is, is really powerful, using language that's non-judgmental and inclusive um, is, is really important. And I think, you know, generally we do this really well as yoga teachers, but learning to refine our language so we can make, um, you know, we can offer things rather than insist people do them. We, mm. we encourage people to explore their own internal landscape rather than telling them what things should feel like or what things should look like. Um, all these, you know, reduce the likelihood of comparison and competition, which, you know, we would like to think doesn't happen in a yoga class, but happens in yoga classes. Um, so I mean, teachers are humans use. and if they have if they feel that within yeah. themselves, they're going to project that in their language. If they feel that they compare themselves mm-hmm. without knowing, um, they're going to naturally encourage people to act at, as at from a place of comparison and competition. Yeah, so looking at our own biases and our own beliefs is going to be really important. So we're, we're coming from that place. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, another really important part of, of creating a safe container is around touch. Now, you mm. know, nobody's really touching anybody at the moment with COVID. I don't know what it's like uh, in your part of the world, but here we're all, all the teachers are 1.5 metres. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in Australia, it's down south in Melbourne, um, the yoga studios are closed. They've been on lockdown for like, I think, 100 days or something. Up here where I am, yoga studios are open, but there's tape on the floors and everybody's 1.5 metres away from the students. Um, so, you know, that is probably really safe for students who don't want to be touched if you come to a studio and nobody's going to touch you because they can't. You know, that is create, creating safety. You know, pre-COVID and, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to be moving through this <laughs> at some point, um, that being really mindful of touch uh, with your students and either don't touch your students and tell them you're not going to touch them or if touch is something that's part of your teaching and you want to offer that to your students that you always, 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 always 
ask for consent and ask in a way that they can easily say no and in a way um, that, you know, communicates that you're totally on board with them saying no. In fact, mm-hmm. maybe you even celebrate them <laughs> if they say no. So how can that look? Because I know if oftentimes it will be asked as simple as, can I? And mm-hmm. just that is hard to say no. Like it's as a student, no. you feel like, okay, sure, you can, even if maybe you don't feel like it. So how can we change mm-hmm. that question to something that is mm-hmm. open to a no? Yeah, great. So I, I really like to set this up at the beginning of class and say, you know, actually, I created these consent tokens. Let me grab them and I'll show them to you. Hold on. So we created these these consent tokens here. For those who are on the video, you can see the video. So one side one one side it says yes, and the other side it says no thanks. Well, one says yes please, and one says no thanks. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I like to use these is is you know pre COVID anyway. We'd put these at the beginning at the at, on each student's mat with the no side facing up, and at the beginning of each class, saying you know I've put this token on the um, the front of your mat. And so this is around touch and consent. If you like hands-on assists in your class, during the class, you can flip it over to yes. If you mm. prefer none, then you can leave it as no. So the, de- the default is no. Mm-hmm. They have to make an active choice to put it over onto yes. I like that. And also, and also so that kind of sets the scene as no. And then they have to choose. And also, um, you know, always add something around. You can always change your mind at any time. You can flip it back to no or flip it to yes at any time. And even if you put the consent token on yes, I'm still going to ask. In this moment. Opt in again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if if I wanted to offer a hands-on assist for a student, I would still ask, may I? Mm -hmm. Okay. I like that that the token has uh, the no and the yes on it. Because what I've seen with token in the past is that the student have to take the token at the desk and put it at their mat if they do not want. So the token is a way to be identified as that person that doesn't want assist. And just that yeah. can be uncomfortable for people. Definitely. Just that it doesn't like, work like that. Yeah, I, I, I never really like that. It's like, okay, that's an idea, but this is better. This is better that they yeah. all have one and they just decide which side they put it on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to opt in to touch. It's mm-hmm. not, you're not in opting out, you're opting in. And so people have to make that choice to do that. And it's so interesting as a teacher, when you do this, you know, when I first started using these, I was surprised at who said yes and who said no. Like I thought I knew my, like I thought I knew what my students would have said, but you no, know, I didn't. I didn't, they responded differently than I imagined. So. That is so interesting. We do have assumption and expectations on our students that we mm. don't know that much, actually. Yeah. But we yeah. might think that, oh, that person does like adjustment and that person does not really. And naturally, we go more towards one versus the other and we might be totally off. Yeah. And that day, 100%. maybe usually they do, yeah. and that day they're feeling very vulnerable. And Definitely. that day they prefer to hide in the corner and pretend like... Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, use, using using these um, and talking about consent, where it's consent tokens or whatever, whatever method that you use is around touch and it's about consent and it's about having sovereignty over our bodies and I get to decide who touches my body, which I think is really important. It also has this other thing about choice. It introduces choice. And often when we have a history of trauma, our choice has been taken away. So by definition, trauma is something that happens that we couldn't control, that we couldn't change. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it traumatic. And so what can happen as a result of that is that we lose our ability to make choices. When our choices weren't, either our choices weren't respected or we couldn't, for whatever reason, we couldn't take action. We, over time, we can lose that ability to know what we want, to speak what we want, and to have our choices listened to and honored. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is a really small thing, but it can have huge, like, it have a huge impact. And it's it's much more broad than do you want to be touched or not. It has all these kind of layers to it. And so, some people say, you know, some lineages of yoga they say you should never touch your students. Um, And, you know, I fully respect that. If, if that's what people want to do, great. I, I 
have given this a lot of thought. And I think that blanket statement of never touch your, like nobody should ever touch their students is too broad because I think this, this piece around choice and sovereignty and making choices around your own body, who can touch it and who can't. Um, and, you know, more generally being able to make choices, being able to communicate them and having them um, deeply respected, that that is therapeutic in itself. And there's a lot there for people. Mm-hmm. And we can come back with the idea of language and offering choices in your language, in the postures and in modification. And so it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can do this, do this. If you cannot, here's an option. But here's two options. Here's our two choices for you in this moment. You can play with this or this as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. I love that. So being predictable. Um, So it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So it's not, this is, this is the best one or this is what we're aiming for. And this is the one, well, you know, if you can't do it, you can just do this one. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Here's, here's two options. Try them out and, and feel the one, you know, do the one that feels best in your body today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe the one that fits most in with your intention for your practice. One is not better than the other. Mm-hmm. They're just two different options and take your pick. And for the person that is disconnected from making choices or it's a challenge for them to know what's best for them, they have a chance again and again and again during class to experiment and to feel, I can do this, I can do this, and then what do I want? Instead of always doing what is being prescribed, air quote, Mm -hmm. um, for them Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, 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 while it can be therapeutic, it can also be really challenging for somebody when you give them choices and they're not used to it mm-hmm. as well, especially so if you've been to a yoga too? class. Can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, we can never completely eradicate someone's anxiety in class. Sometimes we create it, <laughs> but we can show up and we can do the best that we can. But in terms of choice, so we might, I mean, we could offer like 10 different choices and that, but that's going to be really yeah. overwhelming. So maybe we offer two choices mm-hmm. and they can choose between those two. So there's still that element of choice, um, but it's not too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be in every single pose either. It might be a handful during class that you're like, here's two options, decide which one feels mm-hmm. best for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe there's a like an introduction at the beginning that, that says that I really encourage you to tune into what you need in each moment. So you're welcome to adapt or adjust the, the practice or postures at any time. In fact, I wholeheartedly encourage you to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah, always that invitation. Yeah, giving permission is a big deal. It has yeah. a big impact, just that act of giving permission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and doing it in a real way. Like I think sometimes we can just give lip service to it, mm. um, but really like really holding that intention. And maybe it's even, you know, as we're demonstrating something with the students that we choose the like so-called easier version or the less strenuous dynamic version. So we're modeling, look, I'm choosing this version. This other version isn't the best. Um, so we're really kind of demonstrating that in the way that we share the postures and the language that we use you know, that we're, you know, authentically, that kind of shines through us without Mm -hmm. it being kind of tokenistic. Yeah. And as we demo, we can say something as simple as this feels better in my body, this variation, but you can try this one too. Yeah. Like, it's not like this is better in any way, but I'm going to, I'm offering you two. I'm doing this one because this feels better for me. Nice. So why don't you try it out and see which one feels best in your body, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we talked about being predictable uh, mm-hmm. in the space and in the way we teach as well. Yeah, We talked about yeah. letting the door open or unlocked anyway <laughs> so people can leave yeah. if they need. We talked about languaging yeah. around should versus an invitation, giving permission, mm-hmm. and you know how people can make choices. And we talked about mm-hmm. touch, mm-hmm. Um, asking for consent, talking about it using Mm, a token or something like that is there anything else that we should consider as a way to create a safe container for students yeah I mean something that you touched on is is really powerful um at the beginning and that's presence Mm. giving our students our presence and I mean that sounds simple um but, you know, it doesn't always happen. You know, I remember when I was, I was living in London and doing my internship in Ashtanga Yoga. This is where I started teaching this Ashtanga Yoga. 
And uh, it was this really big room and there was a kind of uh, my soil style at the front that the senior teachers were working with. And then there was the beginning students, like introduction to Shtanga yoga students. And then there was a few, um, like myself and another um, assistant doing doing the program. And, um, you know, I was learning it all and I was practicing how to be a teacher. And then finally the teacher said, okay, you can, you can take the beginner's class. And I was so excited and so nervous. And I practiced doing the chant and the alms and that, you know, all this stuff. And so I, I taught the class, I did the chant, I did the whole class. The students were in Shavasana and I was just so excited that I got through the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And there was another, another student who was apprenticing as well. And she, she kind of came in, all the, all the students were lying down in Shavasana and I kind of went over to her, like tiptoed over to her. I was like, oh my God, I did it. I taught my first class. And the, like the teacher that I was apprenticing with came over to me. She was like, oh my God, you cannot do that. Get back to your students. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, but what I, I mean, it felt really harsh at the time, the way she spoke to me, but in hindsight, what I'd done is I'd left my students there by themselves. I'd abandoned them. Mm. And even though they were in Shavasana, I still needed to be there and I still needed to be present with them. And I really took from this kind of very first class that I took how important it is. Mm. It doesn't matter if they can't see you being present, you still need to be present. And, you know, this was before social media and all of that and all of that stuff before the temptation of sitting there and checking your Instagram account. I was just going to say, this is an example of physical presence, but there's also, you might be physically present, but you might not be Mm -hmm. fully mentally present. So you gave the example of social media, yeah, checking your phone in Shavasana. (laughs) Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) Any other ways that we can be more present as a teacher other than just being physically in the room? Yeah. Well, um, we can, you know, you know, we're human. So we're going to be thinking about our shopping list and our, you know, the mean thing our partner said or what we're having for dinner, you know, like we're human. So this stuff's going to come up, but as best we can, when that does come up, can we put it aside? Can we say, okay, I see that that's arising. I'm going to, you know, in IRS, we call this bracket this, I'm going to put this to the side, I'm going to pick this up after class, but now I'm going to be present for our students. Mm-hmm. So it's human nature for our minds to wander for things to come up. We're not going to stop that. We're not going to be able to stop that. But we can make an effort for attention to be onto what we're doing Definitely. in this moment. When it comes, we can notice it, we can put it aside and bring ourselves back. You know, so this, this, then our teaching becomes like a meditation, right? This is what we do in our meditation. Something arises, we let it go, we come back. So the, this then our you know, teaching becomes like a meditation. Now, we don't want to be too intense with our students. Like, you know, sometimes you can be present and you can be like really present, like with the big eyes. And, the, you know, like we want to have, we want that to be, you know, we want to be gentle in that. Otherwise we're going to freak our students out with our good intentions of presence. Mm-hmm. So we have this kind of gentle, gentle presence without being too in- <laughs> intense about it. So you're not hovering like an eagle over like, ah, you know, like you don't need to. Yeah, no, you know, in parenting, we call it helicopter parenting. You don't need a helicopter teach, I guess you can say your yeah. students. Yeah, um, totally. that'd be really I mean, we've all been around. We've all been around when people are really intense with their eye contact and intense, and, and it's a little bit, I don't know, scary maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can we be present without that intensity of it? And um, you know, so if our students have a question, we're there. If they have a reaction, we notice it. If someone's like sitting up and having a panic attack. Like you, you, you can see it. Or if they sit up and look around and you know, put their hand on their heart, you notice, you notice what's happening Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the room. And, you know, often there's nothing you need to do. You know, we don't need to go, we don't need to fix people. We don't need to rescue people. We can let people have their emotional experience in the class. It's not that there's something we need to go in, like sweep them with our white cape and fix, but to, you know, let them know that you've seen them and maybe smile. And And that comes back to staying in their scope of practice. You can see that someone is having an experience and you can be present with them in that experience mm-hmm. without having to fix it in any way. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not part of that scope to fix what they're mm-hmm. feeling. I mean, I would go so far to say it's not anybody's scope. Yeah, I was to fix actually anything. thinking that as I was thinking. I was like, well, is it anybody's? <laughs> yeah, like, 
Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think their natural tendency as humans is to want to, you know, help the person. Not in the sense like your emotion is not healthy yeah. and let me fix it so you don't have it. But in the sense of we want to make them feel better in some way, I think that's really natural, yeah. even though if it's not necessarily productive. Um, and well, you know, most many of us come into teaching yoga because we want to be of service. We want to help. So we have this natural kind of pull towards helping. Um, but can we help without rescuing or fixing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, being present is a big help. Maybe that's all that's required. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked about really good things that we can do we can focus on our teachers to adapt our class to create a safer container is there anything on the opposite side of that spectrum that we should consider that maybe we don't think about that could be triggering or that could add on to trauma or that could just be counterproductive for our students that are showing up and they're feeling challenged mm-hmm. yeah I mean I guess I guess the flip the flip side of all of that stuff um so You know, I think touch is a big one. So coming back to that, you know, if you imagine, you know, um, often sexual trauma happens in at nighttime and you can imagine maybe if you were, you know, maybe you don't want to imagine it, but if somebody was sexually abused in the evenings by their parent or their step-parent or an uncle or somebody and they kind of crept up in the dark at night. And then they come to a yoga class and they're in child's pose and the, the yoga teacher lowers the light and then comes up behind them and puts their hands on their backside and presses down. You can imagine how triggering that might be, right? Now, that's not an uncommon thing to happen. It's not uncommon for teachers to lower the lights. It's not uncommon to offer that adjustment with or without consent. And yet that adjustment in particular and other adjustments like that can be incredibly triggering for people Um, so again it comes back to be very predictable if you're offering touch and always 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 ask probably don't sneak up behind people either and I would suggest not turning the lights down if you're in shavasana for example and the light's too bright often people I feel as they can take them or leave them Um, if your class You know, I know some people offer like classes by candlelight or there's something, you know, special about it being dark in the class. If you if you want to offer that, put it in your class description and make it very clear from the outset so people can opt in or opt out of that. They know what's going to happen. Here we are being predictable again. Mm -hmm. But going to a yoga class and then someone turns the lights down at the end and it's dark. One, if you have some kind of sexual trauma that, you know, can be really triggering. But two, if you're not feeling 100% safe and you can't see where the exit is and you don't know where the teacher is and, um, you know, maybe there's a guy lying next to you on the mat and you don't feel safe around men, um, that that can be really triggering. And you you can bet that student is not going to be blissing out in Shavasana. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's a good tip. That's not something I would have actually thought about, especially when classes are really, really packed and the mats are really close to each other. Yeah. You might feel uncomfortable to be in the dark next to someone else like that. Even or having the, the teacher walking to somebody around. Else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can um, share one of the experiences of one of my students because she gave me permission to share it is that we were teaching a kind of a restorative yoga class and in a relatively small space. I mean, this was pre-COVID, so it wasn't 1.5 meters between mats, but it would have been a meter between mats. And I mean, I knew her really well. And she came and lying down next to like next to a male student, um, you know, with all the things like you would have in a bed, right? The bolsters and the blankets and, you know, so it was kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a bed scenario. And she had a history of sexual trauma that had happened in a bed with a guy that was sleeping next to her and um, she freaked out. It was too much to be lying there. She knew me and she knew that the space was safe, but still having a a male that she didn't know lying next to her, she couldn't do it. So she sat up and she left and we talked about it um, afterwards. And then, and so the next class, because it was a course that we were doing, I made sure, you know, I didn't tell anybody else, but I just made sure the men were over the side and the women were over the side. Um, But yeah, I mean, you, you would never know that that was going to happen and yet it did for her and because because I knew her well and because I was present with what was happening when she sat up and when she had a a reaction to that I was able to be present with her and support her through it Mm -hmm. 
that's a that's a good that's a good example for people to think about. Um, so coming back to the scope of practice, is are there any skills that within mm-hmm. the yoga teaching world that teachers can own on that are more therapeutic in a way um, to support people? Is there particular skills as a teacher? So your scope of practice as a yoga teacher is to teach yoga. Mm-hmm. So unless you have qualifications, your scope of practice doesn't include counseling. It doesn't include advice about any to take or not to take antidepressants. It doesn't include essential oils. It doesn't include physiotherapy things. Um, it doesn't include, um, you know, any kind of like adju- like manual adjustments like a um, osteo would do. Um, your scope of practice as a yoga teacher, unless you're otherwise qualified, is to show up and teach yoga. And let's not just teach yoga. Like teaching yoga is this amazing offering that mm-hmm. we're that we're giving our students, and they're coming to us for that reason. So let's give them, let's give them that gift. Like it's such an amazing offering to give students. I think so, sometimes we feel like we need to give more. Like mm-hmm. they're asking more of us, or we're feeling like. I should know more. Not enough I should be able way. to do everything. Mm-hmm. The not enough story. Yeah, here we go. This is a good story that, that a lot of us have circling around. I'm not enough. Um, yoga is enough in itself. So what in the practice itself would be very supporting? Is there a particular type of poses? Is there a particular, mm-hmm. is yeah. there so like an aspect mis- of yoga philosophy that comes in and intertwines with Western psychology in a way that you can talk about some of these concepts, but under the umbrella of yoga philosophies, how can we mm. go a little bit more deeper in that within yoga? Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of things within a yoga class that is therapeutic. So yoga, you know, unless you're a yoga therapist or another kind of therapist, yoga isn't therapy, but it, it is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have to be therapists, but it can have therapeutic benefit and you know there's many reasons why this let me list some of them so you know coming together in community is therapeutic where where loneliness is an epidemic mm-hmm. even before covid and so coming together is incredible i think we're 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 all wired for connection with each other so coming together in community in sangha is powerful in itself um moving the body is therapeutic physically and emotionally um mindfulness is you know we know is is amazing for um our mental health and doing it in an embodied way i think is is even more powerful for many people sitting down and doing kind of a 40 minute um seated kind of mbct mindfulness-based cognitive therapy um meditation is you know can be helpful for many people but it's very it's not always accessible for for people whereas becoming and moving your body and sensing your body as you move and being mindful in the way that you move your body is much more accessible for many people mm-hmm. so the mindfulness component um you know in yoga there's lots of practices to regulate our emotions so you know we might do um you know abdominal breathing for example is really powerful in down regulating the nervous system it's very simple And it's very powerful. So learning practices to help to regulate the nervous system and regulate the mood is, is, is really powerful. And there's lots of those. Like that's what yoga does really well. A lot of pranayama practices are that's, that's um, really effective in doing that. So we can practices to upregulate the nervous system when we're feeling low and downregulate the nervous system when we're feeling kind of anxious or stressed or um, out there. Um, yeah, exercise. You know, I know some people say yoga is not exercise, so I'm going to be a bit controversial by saying that. <laughs> but we know that exercise is good for our mental health. Some of the research says that exercise is just as effective as antidepressants with much less side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends how you practice yoga. Yoga, like, of course, isn't always exercise, but it can be, depends depending on how you practice. So. Mm-hmm. Totally. Hey, those are great great tools so community and as a, as a teacher creating community is a challenge for some especially newer teachers but it could mm-hmm. be as simple as hanging out before class or after class or sitting down mm-hmm. for a cup of tea and inviting people to sit with you or 
There's really mm-hmm. simple ways to connect with your student yeah. learning their names, making really that effort. Learning their names. Learning it their can names. be that simple. Yeah. And you know what? One of the real benefits of teaching yoga on Zoom is everybody's name is on the screen. <laughs> that is helpful. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. But I mean, it can be that simple. Saying hi to people and using their names when they when they Yeah. Come I've had teachers walk in a minute before class and you're mm-hmm. like, I've never met you before. <laughs> You know, I, I don't yeah. know you, but it is yeah. it is something that happens. And I've had other teachers that are there going around the room and saying hi and, hey, we've never met before. What's your name? And, you yeah. know, introducing themselves and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I read a book um, that that um, talked about Krishnamacharya and he apparently would meet his students at the gate and bring them in. Mm. And then as they left, I mean, he did one-on-one stuff, right? But then he would walk them out to the gate and he talked about it as the like a vinyasa of welcoming and farewell, that this kind of meeting at the gate and bringing them in and then walking them back out as they left was part of the vinyasa of, of the yoga class. That um, is so sweet. Yeah. I don't know you want to do that with every single one of your students, students, but the the quality of that is saying hi. I mean, just saying hi to every student when they come in, when they come in through the door and either saying their name or getting them, you know, getting their name and making an effort to to learning it is, Mm -hmm. is powerful. So I wanted to come back to one last thing before we finish that you said earlier, and you talked about Mm -hmm. like if someone is having a panic attack in your class. So I just wanted to ask if you have any tips for teachers that might have to deal with the moment of crisis. We talked about just being present, but what if being present is that moment is not enough or that moment of crisis is disruptive for the rest of the group? How as a teacher can we support a student having a moment of crisis and yet support the rest of the group as well? Yeah, and not just really leave the room question. with that person or how, how do we balance both? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. And, um, you know, this is something that we go into a lot of detail in the mental health or yoga training dealing with, with mental health crisis in terms of a panic attack. You know, sometimes you won't even know someone's having a panic attack. It's amazing with anxiety. Um, we get really good at looking like we, like we have our shit together and un, like, it's like ducks on the water. They're like smooth sailing at the top and then they're like legs are paddling madly mm-hmm. underneath. So you may or may not know somebody's having a panic attack, um, you know, depending on how strong it is and how good they are at, um, you know, gliding like a duck on the, <laughs> on the water. Um, yeah. So one, you might not know Two, most of the time there's nothing you need to do. There is, you know, we talked about the presence. So maybe it's um, just acknowledging them and letting them know and smiling, letting them know that you're there. Maybe it's going over and um, saying, I'm here if you need me. You don't need to touch people, but you can you can go over and say, is there anything I can do? I'm here if you need me. Um, and usually that's all that's required. In my experience, this doesn't get big and disruptive for the other students in mm-hmm. the class. I guess it has, it had it could have the potential to do that. Um, but in my experience, that's not how it mm-hmm. unfolds. Somebody is just kind of sitting there maybe with some tears down, down their eyes, or maybe they're breathing, you know, mm-hmm. over breathing, having, having kind of short, sharp and shallow breaths. Um, but yeah, it, in my experience, it's not disruptive for the class. It could be that somebody leaves, um, and, you know, if you're the only teacher there, then you don't want to leave your whole class to go and be with them. Mm-hmm. So in, in that case, my suggestion would, you know, if you have an assistant, maybe they can go with them or a co-teacher, but otherwise see if you can make some eye contact with them um, as they're leaving um, so they know that you've, that you've seen them um, and follow up with them after class, give them a call, send them a text, do something to connect mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. after class. Um, you know, we talked about fixing and changing and rescuing, you, you know, you don't need to do that. You don't need to fix somebody when they're having an anxiety attack. If you've created a safe container, maybe they're having it because they feel safe, you know, maybe they feel safe enough to let it bubble up to the surface and to let it be a little bit visible. Mm -hmm. Um, and to have that big emotional experience in a place that they feel safe enough to have that, like what amazing gift. It is. It is. Yeah. Great. Can I actually, I want to add one more thing to that. Being around somebody who's anxious can be, especially if you have your own anxiety, can be incredibly anxiety inducing. So one of the best things you can do is to calm yourself. Yes. 
to draw on the skills that you have to downregulate your nervous system so you can be present, so you're not escalating each other. Exactly. So as a teacher, knowing yourself enough mm-hmm. and knowing how to downregulate your own self, just that will mm-hmm. help the other person downregulate on their mm-hmm. own because that energy is yeah. rippling to them too a little bit, your calmness, your groundedness, your... Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, this this resonance. You know, at, at the moment, there's a lot of anxiety around. And if you're around other people who are anxious, you can start to get in that kind of field of anxiety. But have you ever been around someone who's really calm and chilled? Like you tend to kind of meet them there as well. Have you had that experience yeah, before? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? If there's like one takeaway you'd like listeners whether they're students or teachers to leave with, what would that be? Oh, just that I'm so glad that we're having this this conversation and these conversations are becoming more and more common because, you know, we all go through stuff in our life and we all need support at different at different times. And um, to be able to speak about mental health here on your podcast and, and also I hope that this encourages the people listening in to have conversations about mental health with their students, with their friends, with their partners and be, be open about this and be willing to ask for support and be willing to, to be of support to other people I think is, is really powerful. That's great. Thank you. So I'll put all your info in the show notes and the program. In the meantime, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to continue this conversation, if they have further questions? Great. Yeah. So if if anyone's interested in learning more about mental health aware yoga, I'd love to share it with you. You can, you know, all the details are on our website, mentalhealthawareyoga.com. We're now, since COVID, offering 100% online trainings. Um, we also have a Facebook group that you can join for free and we're sharing lots of great information and creating community in there. So if you just search Mental Health Aware Yoga uh, group on Facebook, you'll find it or maybe you can put that in the show notes I will. as well. Mm-hmm. And Instagram, Mental Health Aware Yoga. Amazing. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much. I think that was a very useful episode. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me and being brave enough to have these conversations. It's really cool. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. Come and connect with us on Instagram at on and off your mat podcast and visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to donate to support this show or to become a premium member and get your hands on all our exclusive content, including that alternate nostril breathing practice of this month. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guest of today, Dr. Lauren Tauber, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you guys for listening. Until next time.